Welcome to the Mind Twist, a conspiracy theory radio show where we bring you some of the world's most controversial, thought-provoking, and unresolved conspiracy theories. We cut through the red tape and take a closer look at the paradoxes, evidences, and history. The harder it is to believe, the more intriguing it becomes. Let's unravel the evidence together and find what's concealed in the world's most disputed conspiracies and get to the truth, or will we? And now, get ready to have your mind twisted on Mind Twist Conspiracy Theory Radio. Good evening, everyone. Welcome to the Mind Twist. I am your host, Donna Lyons, coming to you live from Washington, D.C., right here on the Lions Radio Network. And today my guest is fascinating. His name is Kevin Randall. He's a prominent ufologist within the UFO community. He is often regarded as one of the most preeminent experts on the reported crash of the UFO near Roswell, New Mexico. He is a professional best-selling author with over 100 books to his name. Uh, He has a Ph.D. in psychology and was in the United States Air Force and National Guard, where he held the rank of lieutenant colonel before retiring in 2009. He's written a new book called The Best of Project Blue Book, and he is here to talk about it. Kevin, welcome to the show. Well, thank you very much. But can I make one quick correction? Yes, you may. I started my military career on active duty with the Army. And uh, oh, flew helicopters wow. and flew helicopters in Vietnam. So as an army helicopter pilot. Wow. Well, I want to thank you for your service. I come from a military family as well. As we were talking real quickly before we went on live, and uh, I appreciate the sacrifice, especially you know Vietnam. My gosh, um, that's a lot to handle. And so thank you very much. Well, you're certainly welcome. And you are here to talk about your book. It's called The Best of Project Blue Book. And I'm fascinated by this because I watched the show Project Blue Book. And obviously we know that is a drama, not a documentary. <laughs> so tell, first tell us, how, how did you get, before we talk about the book, how did you get involved with UFOs? What fascinated you to take this step into that direction? I always blame my mother. When I was... <laughs> When I was when I was young, uh, she took me to see a movie, Earth versus the Flying Saucers, and that sort of uh, sparked the interest. But she was also always interested in science fiction, which is about alien visitation and interstellar flight and alien civilizations. And UFOs aren't a lar- a big step from uh, the science fiction aspect of it. So that kind of sparked the interest. Right, uh, and um, then from there it was just one thing after another, and. So tell us how you got involved with Project Blue Book. The Air Force spent 22 years investigating flying saucers, UFOs, and Uh accumulated a whole lot of information. And, of course, for a long time that information was kind of hidden, although they say, well, there was no classified material in Project Blue Book. As you go through the files, you find a lot of documents that were marked secret or confidential, so clearly there was classified material. But Blue Book is uh, the official investigation of UFOs. And after Blue Book closed down in 1969, some years later, the files were declassified and sent to the Air Force archives at Maxwell Air Force Base. And then later on, they were sent to the National Archives. But having an opportunity to go through the Project Blue Book files and see how it matched up 
with what we know about the cases and what the Air Force said about the cases uh, was kind of the driving force behind it. They um, would label cases just to label them. It didn't matter if the explanation made a lot of sense or not. And so you begin to wonder exactly how much of the information in the Blue Book Files is good information if you strip away the uh, conclusions they drew and just look at the evidence and the testimony that was gathered. And it becomes a, an important um, repository of a lot of good UFO cases. Right. And then, uh, and I'm sure there's so many that we don't know about that you probably know about that ha- haven't been told yet. And so that's part of the reason you wrote the book, this, the new book, um, because it examines the evidence that you now have access to that we probably don't have access to. So tell me what is in the book that, that we are going to go, oh, my God, we thought maybe that was, but, no, but we didn't, and now we have proof. What are some of the things that you have proof of, without giving away too much of the book, what are some of the things you have proof of that we're just, it's going to knock our socks off and we're going to go, oh, my God? What I hope is a connection between the Kenneth Arnold sighting from June 24, 1947 has kind of sparked the uh, public interest in the United States and his description of the, of, of the craft. And some two weeks later, on July 7, 1947, a fellow named uh, William Rhodes in Phoenix, Arizona, took a picture, two pictures of a craft flying over his house. Uh, later on, Arnold, who'd worked with a couple of um, Army intelligence officers they had investigated his sighting and arnold was investigating another sighting and asked for their help and they met in a hotel room to discuss it and arnold wanted to know what was going on and one of the officers and i believe it was um brown told him that they had some pictures that had just come from phoenix arizona it looked an awful lot like what um he had photographed or he had seen and it sort of drew a connection between the Arnold sighting and the sighting in um, Phoenix that also involved photographic evidence, and it became an important part of it. The Air Force, Army Air Force at the time, but the United States Air Force later, labeled the case a hoax because they just didn't like William Rhodes. He was the photographer, didn't like his background. He, they said, well, he was just a musician. He was living off his wife as a she was a teacher and all of this stuff. And when you get into Rhodes' background, you found out, find out he was really quite a brilliant guy. He had held a number of patents, and part of his income, and maybe a large part of his income, came from royalties, from the patents he held, so that he could do what he wanted and not have to earn a living in the conventional way. But the Air Force was... Uh, they needed to explain the photographs. They couldn't do so, so they just labeled the thing a hoax because they just didn't like his attitude and they didn't like his photographs. Oh, my God, that's just amazing. You know, it's funny how the government, uh, they can do what they want. (laughs) We've seen it. We've seen it many times, and I'm sure there's been a lot that was covered up. Now, I I heard that there isn't, and maybe you know this and you can clarify this because we've had several shows on UFOs. And one of the questions is, is there a specific office in the Pentagon for UFOs? I don't think there's a a specific office today. Back in 1947, when this all started, um, the investigation was housed at uh, Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. 
And then when it was closed down um, in 1969, they said, well, there is no further UFO investigation. We discovered something called Project Moondust, which was a carry-on. Moondust had a UFO component. Moondust was designed to uh, retrieve returning space debris of a foreign manufacturer, meaning Soviet, or unknown origin, Mm -hmm. meaning alien. And you go through the documents that we were able to recover through Moondust, and you discover that there is, in fact, a UFO component. I found four documents in the Project Blue Book files labeled Moondust. The sightings are really crappy sightings. I mean, they last for a minute, and a, a second, two seconds, and apparently were meteors, but they're labeled Moondust. And I think that's the important thing, that you have UFO sightings in the Project Blue Book files labeled as Moondust. But wow. I, think, I think that the... The um, investigation is not at the Pentagon, but probably at Fort Meade, or it may be, or it may be at Fort Huachuca. And this is, well, Fort Huachuca is the home of um, the intelligence schools, and so it may be housed there as well. But we do know that there was uh, information that was gathered, and it's at uh, went to Fort Meade. There was something called the 1127th Air Activities Group, I believe, and then it morphed into a different name. And they were headquartered for a long time at uh, at Fort Meade. Wow, I you know I ordered the book, but it hasn't arrived yet, and it's because the mail is so slow. Because I ordered it on Amazon Prime, and I thought, oh, I'll get it before I do the interview, and I haven't received it yet, so I, I cannot wait to get my hands on it. Um, but do you have now? You talked about photographic evidence. Do you have that in the book? Do you are you able to? Are you sharing some of the? photos in there well i looked at the cases the cases that i thought were important based on the evidence and who who was involved in all this when we talk about the Rhodes photograph yes there's photo the the Rhodes photographs are in the case in the book what i did was uh, project blue book had a sort of a massive index which had a project card was what they called it and the basic information is labeled on the card and then the rest of the information is filed away and so I tried to start each chapter with the representation from, from the Project Blue Book files of the project card. So you, you see the project card, and you see what the Air Force said about it, and then the additional information, there's additional documents in, in the book from, from the Project Blue Book files, and there's other photographs. So we try to build sort of a, um, a case for the credibility of all that we're saying, or I'm saying, I suppose, in in the uh, in the book, so you see that I'm not making this stuff up, but there's a, there's documentable evidence. If you go to the Project Blue Book files, which now are basically online, you can find uh, an awful lot of that information at what's called Fold Three, and it's a repository of a lot of documents. Uh, the the Blue Book aspect of it, because it was government recovered documents and that sort of thing, is is online for free. You just sign up and you can go there. I've got a complete set of the Project Blue Book files on microfilm, and I find that some of the cases are uh, missing from from the Fold 3 stuff, and but I can find them on the microfilm and things like that. And, and so um, the information is all now available, and what I've done is I've gone through and I've picked out what I think are the best, some of the best cases. I didn't get them all because you know, otherwise the book would be much bigger. But I've right. got an awful lot of what I think of the best cases, providing evidence in different arenas, um, you know, cases with uh, multiple witnesses and good testimony, credible witnesses, cases that are deal with photographic evidence, cases that deal with not only um, military pilots but airline pilots and ground radar, 
watching the objects as they flew over Washington, D.C. In, in 1952 called the Washington National Sighting. So all that, inf- that information is in the book, and I boiled it down to what I think is the essence of it so you can you get the bare, not necessarily the bare bones, but you get a good look at what the case was, and if then it may inspire you to take a deeper look. I did a whole book on the Washington Nationals called Invasion Washington, so there's a lot more information in that book about the Washington Nationals, but you get the, the, the synopsis, you get a good grasp of what happened in Washington in 1952 in the Best of Project right. Blue Book. And is that, that on Amazon as well? Well, that's an older the book. book. I don't. The, the, the books, the, most of the books are there, but but some of them are out of print. So you're looking at books that are used and that sort of thing. But what yeah. but what what I did in, in Invasion Washington in 1952, the Air Force held a press conference to deal with the sightings. It was the largest press conference that they'd held since since the end of World War II, and I have a transcript of the entire press conference in that book. So you can read the press wow. conference and how they came up with that. The other thing that that I did with this book that takes it beyond uh, beyond Project Blue Book is I could bring in information that was gathered after the Project Blue Book files was were closed or after the specific case was called, closed. For example, in the Washington Nationals, if you, you you study the case, you find out on the second night where there were the sightings and the radar and the airline pilots and the and the military pilots. The second night, mm-hmm. the second Saturday night. Uh, it took place over two Saturday nights. On the second night, there were two guys in the in the uh, radar room, Major Dewey Fournay and uh, Al Chop. Al Chop was uh, the he ran the pen, the Pentagon's UFO desk, and uh, Dewey Fournay was a UFO liaison officer between the Pentagon and 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 Wright Patterson Air Force Base. They were both in the radar room. I had an opportunity to interview them in the mid 1990s, and so I was wow. able to bring that information to the book that, that uh, well, nobody else would have had because I interviewed them myself. <laughs> but but the, point, the point simply is I could bring that information in and say, well, when the Air Force said this or somebody else said this, here's what the guys who were there said and what, the, what right. they remembered about the incident. Ed Ruppelt, who was the chief of Project Blue Book in 1952, in his book in 1956, talked about the Washington Nationals, and he um, couldn't release some of the information that I have because it was classified at the time, and so I had I had access to that, but also I had access to some of the people who were involved in information that was developed after the end of Project Blue Book in 1969. So I could bring all that to bear and give a better perspective of what was going on in Washington D.C. in 1952. Wow! Oh, I I can't wait to read it. What what was it that made you want to write this book? At this time, I, I, hate to, I hate to say this, but it was kind of inspired by History Channel's Project Blue Book. But uh, only yeah, because, I was going to ask. Yeah. <laughs> but but the problem but the problem with their pro- program, their, especially the second season, the only thing that's really true from that program is J. Allen Hynek really was the Air Force consultant, and there was something called Project Blue Book. Uh, other than that, most of the stuff they have is made up. And I thought that people would be interested in reading what was actually in the Project Blue Book files. And since there's like 12,000 cases, and they said only 701 were unidentified, meaning they, they could not come to a good conclusion, what they don't tell you is that some 4,000 are labeled as insufficient data for a scientific analysis, which means there's no explanation, but they're not in the unidentified category. And I looked at some of those cases 
And uh, I even talk about one of them in the book where a guy's case, I think from Austin, Texas in 1969, one of the last cases labeled unidentified was originally labeled insufficient data. And the guy was just outraged by that, and he, and he communicated with the Air Force and wanted to know what, what's missing. Uh, your Air Force officer came out. He interviewed me. We filled out the form. I gave him all the information I had. What information don't you have that you need to uh, explain this case or, or investigate this case? And they uh, changed the designation from insufficient data to unidentified. And there's a lot of cases like that, that if you go through the case file, you can find an awful lot of information that isn't in the um, in the Blue Book files. The other thing they did in Blue Book is they went and they took all the names of the witnesses out of the cases. Um, Bob Cornett and I, a friend of mine uh, from college, I'd learned that the Project Blue Book files were available at, at, at Maxwell Air Force Base in 1976 when I was in college. Um, and so I was also writing magazine articles and I called my magazine editor, who <laughs> returned my phone calls. You know, he'd say, well, the secretary said, well, he'll call you back. And I, said, <laughs> and I, I left the message this one time. I said, well, tell him I can get the Project Blue Book files. I didn't tell him that anybody who knew about it could probably get into them. I just told him I could get into them. And within minutes, I got right. a call back. And, the, and his boss is now talking to me, and he's telling me what he wants to look for and all of this sort of thing. And so I said, well, I guess I've got the assignment. He said, oh, yeah. So we went down to, we, Bob Cornett and I went down to the Project Blue Book files, and the first thing we did was we found out there was an index. And the index listed all the names. So we went through the index, and I've got, I've got a, a Xerox copy of the index in, a, in two loose-leaf notebooks. But we put all the names back in for the unidentifieds. We went through, we spent two or three days going through and listing all the names of the people in the unidentifieds, the photographic cases, physical evidence cases, so we could plug the names back in. So that was one thing wow. we did. But I've, I've since, uh, by going through the files, you, you can usually find the names because they didn't get them all. And I was just working on, on a, a, a story from a guy named Carol Wayne Watts who claimed to have ridden in a flying saucer back in 1967. I believe the case is a hoax. But there was a sighting that took place in that location about the same time that the Air Force was impressed with because it was a, a military guy. And it turns out his name was Ferguson. And reading through the, the, the Air Force document on it, I found his name about three times. So I know who <laughs> it was. Sometimes they would, there's newspaper clippings with the, with the case files. And they sometimes they redacted the names from the case, from the newspaper clippings, and sometimes they didn't. And the one that cracked me up was uh, in the Kenneth Arnold sighting. There was a transcript of a phone interview between an Air Force officer and Kenneth Arnold, and it had the officer's name, and everywhere it said K K A for Kenneth Arnold, they crossed out his initials, so you <laughs> couldn't even get his initials. But on the first page of it, written in grease pencil in letters that have to be a half an inch high, it says Arnold sighting. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> so so you, could, you, you can find it, but you have to search for those sorts of things. Right. And then um, the, the, the Ferguson's sighting, I didn't, know, I didn't get his first name. His first name doesn't appear in the file. But, um, and, and this kind of proves the point, going through other sources, that are available in today's world that weren't available, wouldn't have been available even then, um, I found his first name was Johnny. So I knew it was Johnny Ferguson, so I could plug all that back in. So you can find the, wow. you can usually find the names. Uh, a fellow named Rob Mercer, 
uh, he's an investigator from UFO from from, uh, from Ohio from UFO from from Ohio, and he um, <laughs> he he would periodically look for UFO related material on Craigslist, which I thought was a dumb thing to do, but he found a box of material marked Project Blue Book for sale for a hundred dollars on on Craigslist, so he bought it. And what he found in there was uh, 200 pages on the uh, Socorro UFO landing that Lonnie Zamora, the police officer, saw, and a whole bunch of other stuff. And so he talked to the guy who was selling the stuff, and he said, well, I bought, I bought this thing, these things at a garage sale. Uh, he, I think he bought some used lumber or something at the garage sale, and in the pile of lumber was this box. So he took it, and he, he got home, and he didn't want the UFO stuff. And so Mercer was able to find out where he'd bought the box. He went to the homeowner. He could find the previous owner. Turned out the guy's name was Carmen Morano. He had been – he technically is the last chief of Project Blue Book. And it just, he just, it just devol- devolved to him. All the other officers were gone, and he was a lieutenant. Wow. He was closing down Blue Book, and there was a lot of material that they were just going to get rid of. So he kept wow. it. Wow. And so wow. Morano said to, to, to Mercer, do you want this stuff? And he said, Absolutely. And in that was the index with all the names of everybody. Oh, my God. <laughs> and, and, but what he's got is stuff that's not redacted. So there's an awful lot of stuff in there that, that he, he got access to. So, I mean, uh, and, and that's the interesting thing about the UFO community is um, I was able to learn about Mercer and called him on the phone and talked to him briefly about this. Oh, I know. I, I, ben, ben Moss and Tony Angiola had been doing something with the um, Lonnie Zamora sighting from Socorro. And I had them on my radio program. And they said to me that, there were, that three people had called into the police station before Lonnie Zamora saw the landed craft. But nobody wrote their names down. And I said, did you check the police blotter for that? And I never got a straight answer from them. I don't know why, because I know what the answer is now. And so that kind of sparked my interest in the Socorro sighting. So I went to the Project Blue Book files. And on the night that Zamora saw the landed craft, he was interrogated by an FBI agent and an Air Army officer, Captain uh, Richard Holder. Holder prepared a one a half-page report that went to the Pentagon. And in that report, it said that three that the that Holder had been told that three people had called the police station. So we now know that yeah, that very night that information was documented. So yeah, three people did. What stuns me is that nobody tried to find those people after Zamora had his sighting. They knew the path of the craft. They knew what time it was. Socorro wasn't that big in 1964. They could have found, probably found them, and if nothing else, they could have put a, an ad in the newspaper, the local newspaper, if you saw the craft or heard it on, on April 24th, please let us know. Nobody did that. And so wow. we, we say it about the Socorro sighting, which I talk about at length in the book. We say about the Socorro sighting, well, the, the problem is it's single witness. Turns out it's not. There were other witnesses, and we can document the other witnesses. So it makes it a stronger case. Not only that, of course, there were landing traces. When the craft touched down, there were, there were imprints from the landing gear, and it was clear from the investigation that the landing imprints weren't excavations, meaning they weren't dug out, but they were pressed into the soil. And that gives you an idea of the, the um, 
or could give you an idea of the weight of the craft and that sort of thing. And Zamora saw two beings close to the close to the craft. It's one of three cases in the Project Blue Book files labeled unidentified in which the uh, witnesses claim to have seen the occupants from inside the craft. Most of the time when you started talking about alien creatures, the Air Force wrote it off as psychological. And that was just it. You know, you, you were crazy. Yeah. That sort of thing. But but um, the point is, you know, Mercer had gotten all this material, so he sent me um, he sent me the 200 pages, uh, emailed me the, the 200 pages of the stuff, scanned them and sent them to me, so I was able to bring that to bear. Not only did I have the uh, official file, I had the file that was shown to the news media if if they got the, you know I wanted to come in and talk about a case and they would show them this uh, sanitized version of the uh, of the file. So we got all that material. Right. But the point simply is in today's environment, we all talk about these sorts of things and we get together and we share the information with one another. I don't know how many times people have asked me about some case or some. Um, that I've investigated and I send them all the information I can on it because I think the way we get to the bottom of mm-hmm. the whole thing is to, to share that information. And that's another reason for doing the Project Blue Book book was because uh, it's, it's sharing of the information that I've gathered since the closing of Blue Book that, that impacts and affects the um, uh, analysis of the sightings that appear in the case. And there's some very, uh, in, in the book, uh, or to the Air Force, and there's some very good, very interesting um, cases that just didn't get a lot of publicity because Air Force regulations said that if the local investigator in each Air Force base had somebody, some officer appointed as their Project Blue Book officer, and usually it was some second lieutenant who <laughs> was also the VD control officer and the voting regulation <laughs> officer and all these ancillary nonsensical <laughs> duties. I was when I was when I was in the army back in 19, oh that I shouldn't say this back back in uh, <laughs> when I was first in the army and they were going to have a presidential presidential election and I was the voting officer I wasn't old enough to vote and wow <laughs> because it was before the voting age was changed to 18 I wasn't old enough to vote but I was supposed to counsel yeah. the soldiers on on their voting Anyway, the point simply is, you know, they, they have all these ancillary duties. Some cases they gave it to a guy with a much higher rank and a little bit more prestige. But the regulation said that if you've got a good explanation for it, you're free to talk to the press. You can tell anybody you want about it. If you do not have an adequate explanation, you tell them to talk, contact the public affairs office in the Pentagon for information. So what they were doing is if you've got an explanation, you can hand it out. If you don't have an explanation, you can't tell anybody about it. You've got to go. You, you hand them off to somebody else. The other thing that I noticed by going through the files, and, and this isn't in the book because it's not relevant to this specific book, but there was one case where they were talking about jet intercepts or, or fighter intercepts of it, and the Pentagon liaison officer said there were no intercepts. I'm sure he was telling the truth as he knew it. But when you get into the files and you get other information, you discover, yeah, fighters did inter- try, attempt to intercept the objects. So the liaison officer was telling you one thing, and I'm sure he was telling the truth as best he knew it. And right. the other documents that I was able to find and information I was able to find because I had access to it that he didn't was that there was, there was an intercept in, in that case. So that's you know, one of the things you do in something like this. You bring all that information in and, and, and uh, 
so that people, when they look at it, they don't say, oh, well, that was, that was written off to be a hoax or swamp gas. And I mentioned that specifically because I did do the swamp gas case, which were the Michigan sightings, which mm-hmm. were much more complex than the military let on. And the swamp gas right. explanation simply does not work. Right. You know, it's, and, and you talk about that, you know, what people say, you know, hearsay and physical evidence. And it, that's what's so difficult about this whole thing with UFOs. You know, scientifically, we want to see the pictures. We want to see pieces of metal. We want to see the aliens. So it's really difficult when someone says, I, I mean, you could have people in Europe saying they saw the same thing as someone in the United States at different times. Um, and, and you have to, you can believe them, choose to believe them, or, you, or there are the people out there that want the physical evidence. And that's, that's the hard part about all this. Don't you agree? Absolutely, absolutely. But we've seen, we've seen. Um, I should say, I've seen. I, I say we because I've, I've worked with a number of people like Don Schmidt, Tom Carey, uh, Bob Cornett uh, on various investigations yeah. at various times. Mm-hmm. Um, but what we what we found is um, an explanation will be thrown out about a case, and people will say, "Well, the, the Rhodes case is a perfect example." Uh, the Air Force labeled it a hoax, and that people say, oh, it was proven to be a hoax. Well, actually, no, it wasn't. They said it was a hoax, but they didn't prove it was a hoax. And their rationale for labeling it a hoax doesn't withstand scrutiny. There was another case in Leveland, Texas, in 1957, November 2nd, 1957, which yeah. I've always been fascinated with because mm-hmm. of, of, of what happened. Um, and the Air Force and NICAP, which was the National Investigations Committee on Aerial Phenomena, civilian research organization headquartered in Washington, D.C. at the time. It's now defunct. Well, the director, Don Kehoe, got into an argument with the Air Force over the number of witnesses. Kehoe said there were nine witnesses to the, to the uh, sighting. The Air Force said there were only three. Going through the Project Blue Book files, I found people, and I say people, at 13 separate locations that reported the craft. And so yeah. uh, they're so busy arguing about the number of witnesses that those sorts of details get lost. And when we look at look beyond that, the Air Force um, investigator in Leveland told the sheriff, um, you know, don't really talk about it. The sheriff had gone out after they'd gotten so many phone calls to the sheriff's department. He and, and other law enforcement officers went out looking for the craft. And you read, you read in the analysis later on that he only got, uh, he was 900 yards away or some, some distance away from it, and he just saw a red streak of light. Well, when you get uh, uh, Don Berlinson, who lives in Socorro, uh, Socor, lives in Roswell, which isn't all that far from Leveland, Texas. I think it's like a two-and-a-half-hour, three-hour drive, three drive. Right. He went over and he found the, the widow of the sheriff and the sheriff's daughter and talked to him about it. And they gave him a great deal more information about what the sheriff had seen. And I'm a little bit leery about that because he's gathering the information some 50 years later. And you're thinking, well, you know, 50 years, you're not talking to the guy, you're talking to the family. I found a newspaper article, newspaper clipping, where the sheriff had been interviewed before the Air Force got to him. And so there are direct quotes from the sheriff. He got much closer. And he didn't see just a streak of light. He saw an oval-shaped object. Wow. So, so that and, and, and that's not in the Blue Book files. That was something that I was able to bring to the case later on 
because of what Don Burlinson had said, I was looking for some other stuff, and I came across this newspaper article. So I've got the information that Burlinson had developed. Uh, there was, um, I think, a uh, report on a couple of Texas TV stations about it that we were able to talk, talk about. So we had quotes from the sheriff's wife, from the sheriff's daughter, and I, found, and I found a quote from the sheriff that was dated just a couple of days after the, uh, the sightings in 1957. And, and so you bring all of that together, and you get a much stronger picture. Later on, two hours later, I think it was, the object is now seen at White Sands, New Mexico. And so that would mm-hmm. be four hours away from Leveland. I think it is by car on today's roads, I might add. But two MPs saw an object, and you read the, the file about that, and they didn't get that close, and it was up in the sky. I found one of the guys, and so I talked oh, to him. I, I, inter- wow. I interviewed him. And the Air Force oh, is kind wow. of belittling, belittling him. So, well, you know, they're a bunch of young kid MPs. They don't know what they were talking about. And they, the guy, I think the guys were 21 and 22. And I'm thinking, yeah, at 19, I was an aircraft commander in Vietnam. And you're belittling these guys who are actually much more adult than I was at 19. And the responsibilities I had. So, I mean, they were, you, you just can't belittle the soldiers because of their ages. You know, they were trained right. in what they were supposed to do. And, and the guy told me that they'd, no, they didn't just see this thing in the sky. They saw it getting close to the ground, and it landed about 100 yards away from them. So they got much closer and saw much more than, than in, the, in the Air Force file, but the Air Force kind of belittles their statements and, and ignores them. So I was able to talk to the guy and bring that information into the book as well. Wow, it just sounds fascinating. I cannot wait to get my hands on it and read it. I mean, it sounds absolutely fascinating. Before I let you go, too, I want to ask you, this new show that's out this Skinwalker Ranch. Have you been able to see any of that? Watch any? No, no. I uh, I, yeah. I watched I watched the Project Blue Book series the first season, and if you go to my yeah. blog, if you go to my blog, you'll see I gave yes. it pretty good reviews because you know yeah they, they they were using literary license to advance the story, and and but they didn't get that far afield. But when we get to the new season, it just completely comes off the rails. And then, and I'm thinking about it, you know, as a former Air Force intelligence officer, my I had two offices, and uh, well, I worked I worked for another officer at, at one place, and I was the director of intelligence in, in another. But in both places, we had two offices. There were no windows. There was an outer office where people were stopped, and then there was an inner office where the classified material and classified work was done. In Project Blue Book, the series on TV, they're in this office. Wide open, windows everywhere. Their secretary, <laughs> their secretary. From from what I can see, she is uh, what would be called an airman basic. I mean, she's like an E1, the lowest rank available. Um, I always had at least an E5 as as the NCO working with me, regardless of where we right. were. And I I usually had a couple of other NCOs. Uh, at one place, we had a number of high ranking NCOs as as well as myself and a and a field grade officer. So, you know, that just that just struck me. They're, they've got stuff plastered all over the walls for people to see. People can just yeah. walk in whenever they want. Uh and uh, so, you know, I I just the the second season I couldn't uh, I couldn't really bear and then they go off on the Windwalker Ranch one on the Project Blue Book thing, which of course never happened at all. Windwalker Ranch didn't come about till long after Blue Book was closed and I said, "Nah, I'm not interested in this." And that was, of course, to set up the new series on Wind Walker Ranch. So I haven't bothered with that. Yeah, it's it's 
so stupid. It just, and it's like the second season of Project Blue Book. <laughs> so that's why I'm saying we need books like yours to like really put everything into perspective from the facts. <laughs> yeah, it's. I watched the first two shows and I went, "You've got to be kidding me! This is just ridiculous." So yeah, I would like to see. I mean, after this book gets out there that you've written the best of Project Blue Book. It'll be interesting to see where this goes. It'd be awesome to have um, a show with something like this, with the facts that you've seen. I mean, you actually had your hands on them and read them. And that's so important. What's interesting is um, before the, the first season aired, I was looking at the stuff on the History Channel's website about it. And they mentioned mm-hmm. the sighting that took place in Lubbock, Texas, the Lubbock Lights, and it mentioned that an investigator had spoken to Carl Hart Jr., the photog- photographer, uh, in the mid-1990s, and, and Hart, Hart said that he uh, still didn't know what he'd photographed. And so I'm looking for contact to tell him, because <laughs> it's me. I'm the one that did this. Yeah. I was in Lubbock investigating the Lubbock Lights, and on a lark, I looked up Carl Hart's phone number. I picked up the phone book and looked to see if he was in the phone book, and he was. And I called him. Wow. So I was able to interview him. And so I was looking for a, um, a contact point to tell him. And by coincidence, one of the uh, vice presidents for development of television programs or scripted shows on uh, the A&E networks sent me an email about something. <sighs> and so I wrote back to him and said, you know, uh, I, was, I was looking to do this because you know, you're quoting me. I have no problem with that, but why can't you use my name? Because it's clearly me. And he said, he'll take care of it. And about two hours later, I went back and I looked at the site, and yeah, it said Kevin Randall is the investigator. But I, 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 I could <laughs> not go. understand why they, um, why, why they wouldn't put my name in it because I'm the guy, they're, they're quoting my stuff. And, uh, That's crazy. So I was, you know, so I was interested in, so I was in communication with these guys for, for the first season. It was already in the can, so I wasn't changing anything, although I may have made a, I may have made a change for the second season inadvertently, but, but that way I got to talk to Paul Hynek, because I wondered, I wondered what the Hynek family felt about the way uh, Hynek was being treated in the program. I thought, well, who better to ask than the Hynek, Hynek, so I talked to one of the Hyneks. But I said to him, you know, this takes place in 1952, and you've got an Air Force officer in there, and he's wearing, an, and this is probably something that me and probably two other people in the entire country would have noticed. Um, he's, he's wearing an Air Force Commendation Medal. And I said, those weren't created until 1958. He couldn't possibly be wearing an Air Force Commendation <laughs> Medal. And this season, I notice he's not wearing it anymore. <laughs> And I told oh, him, if you've, got questions, if you've got questions like that, let me know. I will tell you, I, I can answer some of these questions, uh, having served in the military. Yeah, and uh, yeah, exactly. They need people to oversee that kind of stuff. So why they didn't ask you, I don't understand. It's just crazy. Yeah, the second season is just out of control, and it's yeah. uh, it's not fun to even watch anymore. The first season was very well done. I thought, okay, this is great. It's drama, it's- but, I mean, it was mellow and... Um, they did a good job, but now, yeah, like you said, it's just completely one of my out favorite of control. Actors, one of my favorite actors is in that, Neil McDonough. You know, yeah. I've, I've watched him since he was uh, in Band of Brothers. 
and mm-hmm. seen him in a number of stuff. So I've always you know, always been a, been a fan of his, and he's the general who was wearing the medal he shouldn't have been wearing. But but yeah, the first season they did they did okay. The second season. You know, and I argued with my friends in the UFO field about it because I said, you know, we, we have to realize, you know, this is this is a drama, this is fiction, and I could separate right. the fiction from the fact. It didn't bother me that much. But the second season, it just they didn't care about the facts anymore. It's how, you know, Heineck's getting in fist fights for God's sakes. Yeah. Um, it just just absolutely, I don't think Heineck was ever in a fist fight. Um, yeah. And and. Um, and I know that Heineck didn't get along with most of the officers in Project Blue Book um, because of his, um, you know, his feelings about the about it. And I, it, it came to a, a fruition in the Michigan sightings, the swamp gas sightings, where he he arrives on the scene immediately thrown into a press conference, and the um, the uh, uh, Press is asking him what happened, and he says, "Well, it sounds like swamp gas to me." Didn't hadn't mm-hmm. investigated, hadn't done anything, and just made an off-the-cuff comment because the descriptions—if you read some of the descriptions—it does sound like swamp gas. Mm-hmm. When you get into the whole case, you realize that swamp gas is not a possible explanation. And right. so he's kind of thrown in that, and he was very annoyed about that. And then the military came down on him for making this preposterous statement and made everybody look bad. So he was not going to be – he was kind of removed from uh, his public persona because of that. So I, I, And I know that he didn't get along with a number of the, the officers that, that ran Blue Book. And I, and I can kind of understand that because of the military mindset and some of the – I mean, it's just different than the academic mindset. And yeah, so, yeah. The other thing I should say, because this is fascinating, one of the officers in charge of Project Blue Book, Robert Friend, had ex- actually been a Tuskegee Airman. And oh, I thought, well, wow. Yeah, that, that gives him some credibility. Absolutely. So, and so after after the movie about the Tuskegee Airmen came out, uh, Robert Friend was invited. He, he lived out in California. He just died uh, about a year ago. He oh, was invited wow. to lecture about his experiences, but not on Project Blue Book. <laughs> but is it Tuskegee? Oh no! <laughs> Isn't that it's amazing? Oh my gosh! Well, Kevin, but, we are actually running out of time, and I want to say thank you so much. I hope you can come back. I I I love chatting with you. Well, I have no problem with uh, with doing this at all. Oh, fantastic! So we'll we'll plan a show maybe in in like next month or something because I want to. Now I've got I cannot wait to get my hands on the book and just for the people out there, it's called the Best of Project Blue Book. Um, that is the new book that's out, and you can find it on Amazon and I'm sure some other places. So just Google it and uh, you can find it. I'm waiting for my copy, and, and I cannot wait this- to get it. There's stuff on my blog at www.kevinrandall.blogspot.com, and it's, I've had it for 15 years, so you can go there and you can read a lot of UFO stuff. And in the fall, I've got a book coming out called UFOs, The Deep State, and Air Force Office of Special Investigation. So it's looking at some of the manipulations of the information from a different, kind of a different perspective. Oh, excellent. Well, I definitely have to have you on to talk about that one, too. So, Kevin, thank you so 
so much for taking time. I know it's uh, the Easter holidays and we're all quarantined right now. So I appreciate yeah. you taking the time to do this tonight. <laughs> well, I, I appreciate a, the opportunity. Yeah, have a happy Easter uh, to you and your family. And thank you again, Kevin, so, so much. And, I appreciate it. And stay it. well. Stay well. You too. Thank <laughs> <Okay>. you. <laughs> Bye-bye. Bye. Well, that was just fascinating. I hope that you guys can go check out his book, The Best of Project Blue Book, and now you know all the stuff that's in there, and it's going to be fascinating. So uh, I will absolutely do a show after I read it, and we'll have Kevin back on again because I'm sure he could talk, tell us stories for hours, and that is why we have this show. We find it fascinating. I know it's Easter weekend, so everybody enjoy your Easter, Easter, I can't even talk, your week (laughs) coming up and Easter. Uh, Stay well, everyone. We will get through this quarantine. We'll all get through it together. Thanks so much.